Okay, so there it is. Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. Okay, now let me tell you what that means when you just said you're an alcoholic. If that's the case, you are suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience can conquer. And you go, what? I remember my sponsor talking to me and he says, did you hear what I said? You're suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience. It's one of the rare illnesses in the American Medical Association <laughs> that only a spiritual experience can conquer. And I said, Bill, I don't believe in spiritual experiences. Oh, you're screwed. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, what am I going to do? Why don't you change your mind? <laughs> Become a former agnostic. And then I'm going, spiritual experience, what is that? You know, I'm going to believe in the power, what is that? And I had the same feeling Bob does. I don't want to get spiritual to make me give all my crap away to the poor. <laughs> I, what if it overtakes you and your mother Teresa and, and she doesn't go bowling or anything? And so I don't want that, you know, I don't want to become entirely spiritual and I want to partial, whoa. So then the next paragraph confronts this. Okay, you're almost spiritual. You're almost there. It says, to be doomed an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not easy alternatives to face. And guess what? Wow, whoa, 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 whoa. Is there another door? Oh. Doctor, how bad is an alcoholic death? Oh, shit. Okay, I'll do the spiritual door. <laughs> Why do we get spiritual? There's nowhere else to go. They made us a deal we couldn't refuse. We didn't believe in it. We believed that there had to be something behind that door or it's over. So AA doesn't try to prove the existence of a higher power, but it sure convinces you of the need for one. And when you accept to your core gut that you need a higher power, the game is almost over. We just have the other 11 steps. <laughs> but that's, not, that's hardly anything. The steps are very easy. It's debating whether you're going to do them that is the hard part. How long does it take to do a fourth step? Oh, four years and three hours. Four years of delaying and three hours of doing it. But if we desperately have to get through it all, these things go bing, 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 because we're eager to get there. Why are we eager to get there? Are we convinced there's a pot of gold at the end? No, we're convinced that what'll happen if we don't do it. And then when we get there, we go, oh my God, I had no idea I was gonna get this jackpot. And then when we tell our stories, it doesn't sound like that. We go, well, I came in, I saw this beautiful spiritual program, <laughs> and I just went for it. <laughs> and then your sponsor goes, yeah, with my hands around your neck, choking you, you eagerly sought the spiritual program. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 53. The purpose of this show is to allow you free access to alcohol and drug addiction recovery success stories. We hope these stories will enrich your life with tools that will help make your sober experience easier and more serene. 
My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast. However, I am a believer in the program, and the recovery has brought my family and I. We started the show to highlight the dramatic and inspiring stories that have been circulating in recovery meetings for decades, and I wanted to bring those messages of hope directly to you. I am glad that you are here, and I hope that you find what you are looking for. Please remember this podcast is supported by listeners like you. Please consider making a donation so I can continue to make quality episodes for you. You can support us by clicking the donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. There's also a clickable link in the show notes of the episode that you're listening to right now that will take you directly to our PayPal donation page if you prefer to do it that way. And now I wanted to let you know we have a special guest on the podcast today. It's my sister's child, my little nephew, and his name is Austin Rodriguez, and he's here to help us out with listener feedback. Hi, Austin. Hey. All right, here we go. What do you got? All right, for listener feedback, we've got first one up is Colin H. This podcast has been a saving grace in my newfound sobriety. Hearing others share their experience, strength, and hope on this podcast is a part of my daily routine. Love the consistency of the questions posed and the wide variance of answers from the guests. Keep them coming. And our second listener feedback from Kelly J., I am so blessed to get to hear these stories of a lot of you I know and sit in the rooms with and never realized how similar our stories are. You are such a blessing, Mike. Thank you for helping me stay sober throughout the holidays while making a meeting is really hard for me to do. Nice. That's fantastic. I love you, brother, and I appreciate you being here. And thank you for helping me with listener feedback today. No problem. Okay, so we're going to move on to our episode now, and this is titled... There is a solution, part two, by Bob B. and Sandy Beach, and this is a series of workshops that was recorded in Hopkins, Minnesota in 2004. It's three one-hour talks, and what you'll be hearing now is part two. Take it away, guys. If you are what you fill yourself full of, what are you filling yourself full of? I'm not trying to make you shave your head and sell books at the airport, but if you don't have, if you don't have a significant interaction in Alcoholics Anonymous with the book and meetings and the steps and your sponsor, if you don't have a significant anchoring, what are you filling yourself full of? Well, I assume it's work and television and whatever other hobbies we have, gambling, sex, obesity, you know, whatever, whatever else we happen to be running at the moment. But if you're wondering why, if we really have the solution and it's that easy, most of us can't hear the music. And most of us can't hear the music because we memorize the words and we have the concepts, but we're not having the experience. I'm telling you, he's not kidding and I'm not kidding when I say there is a solution. There is a way around and through whatever pain, whatever difficulty, whatever circumstances you're dealing with, they mostly are an illusion. And that when you get in touch, in touch with your core self, when you come home, I mean, the th- it's the silliest thing in the world. You're not missing anything. There's nothing missing. You're not under-equipped. I mean, you didn't miss two or three lines when they sent you down here to live your life like you don't have the right intellect or the right pieces. There are six trillion cells in your body right now doing millions of examinations to send calcium here and grow this there. And You are such a wonder you would have absolutely no idea what a wonder you are, what a success mechanism you are. 
You're not missing anything in the business of being able to live your life. You're just detoured. We're stuck in a place, and we're trying to get our minds to resolve the issue to get us out. The answer is surrender. And, you know, how do you surrender? I mean, that's a hell of a question. Every time someone comes over to your house, the answer is surrender. I think someone, sometimes the older guys, who can sit someone down and have a conversation and help create a clearing. When you said you go over to Sandy's and you talk to them about a problem and you always, almost always leave without the problem, I think what happens is they create a clearing. And they just go, oh, yeah, because nothing has happened to the circumstances. I mean, you go out to the car, not a thing has happened to the circumstances. You just get reminded, oh, yeah, I'm God's kid. I'm, <laughs> I'm a prince, for Christ's sake. You know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I own the kingdom, and I'm worried about my checkbook. Oh, I forgot. You know, but, but it is, I mean, it's, it is extraordinary. So I'll give it back to Sandy. I was thinking about um, how a prayer might go. You might sit down in the morning and you may go get on your knees and go, God, I got a job interview at 1030. I haven't had a job in six months and I really need this job and it's something I'd really enjoy doing. Could you please help me get rid of my fears so that I can be creative and really create a good impression and do the best that I can when I go on the interview. I just ask you to please do that for me and I'll check in with you at the end of the day and let you know how it went. Now that would be a prayer. But if we added what we might call meditation, which is listening to the prayer, we might finish the prayer and then sit there in silence. We may hear something like this. Yeah, I heard your prayer. Why don't you take me with you on the interview? Why do you want to leave me here and go out there by yourself? You see how we're limiting ourselves? We got a little, we got a plan, and then we go, here's the plan, God. Help me, and I'll be back. <laughs> but I want to do it myself, because I don't want to give you the credit all the time. You know, you go to meetings, and you go, God, 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 God. <laughs> what about me? Where am I in the equation? And this is kind of a struggle that uh, we all have. In, in this uh, coexistence, watch out, we'll talk about this, I don't wanna get into that, the riddle of our existence. Um, but we do have a coexistence that we have as a living in the material world and the spiritual world at the same time. And uh, we have to accept this, that this conflict is, exists, and we'll talk about that later. But I think the, um, one of the things that I find, I was talking to somebody right before we came back up here, 
Well, there's a couple of things. I, there were situations that I never knew I had choices in. When I was a teenager, if I was standing with six other teenage boys and a, another kid came up and he pointed right at me and he said, you're ugly, your mother's ugly, and you're stupid, and so is she. And then the, my buddy said, are you going to let him get away with that? I didn't know that I could say, yeah. Yeah, I am going to let him just be stupid and stand there. Yeah, I am going to let him get away with that. He's a real jerk. Yeah. I didn't know that I had the freedom to not do what the crowd was telling me. I didn't know I had a choice of seeing things differently. I didn't know that I could put being undisturbed at the top of the list. And that that was where you are the winner. That it's not competition. It is remaining in this undisturbed place. Um, now, as far as maintaining this, I was, uh, somehow I ended up you know, we don't, Bob and I didn't plan to end up being speakers anywhere. We just came to meetings, and it somehow just happened. We just ended up that somebody said, well, would you come over and talk at our group? And somebody over there was from, my case, was from Baltimore. And, and the next thing, I'm over there, and I'm going, and they go, oh, yeah, some guy from Pennsylvania said, oh, well, I heard this young jerk over there in Baltimore, and maybe we ought to get him up at our little deal, and we go around and... Uh, that was, that was what was happening to me in, um, in um, 1975. I'd been running around to these little things for about five years, and I was in Indiana with Wino Joe. <laughs> and the Al-Anon speaker was Elsa Chamberlain. And she took a liking to me. She just, um, I don't know what it was, she just said, oh, God, that's so nice, or whatever. And she went back to Chuck. Now, I knew Chuck Chamberlain. I mean, everybody knew the word. You said Chuck Chamberlain, and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I had missed out on meeting Bill Wilson. Every year, Hal Marley would say, let's go up to uh, New York, and you can meet Bill Wilson. And I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money to go to Washington to New York. And he said, well, he's going to die someday, and you're going to wish you had met him. Well, so I didn't. And, of course, it's my biggest regret. But Chuck Chamberlain then kind of jumped into the... Um, you know, the AA guru. So anyway, Elsa Chamberlain went back, and I didn't know this, but she went back and said to him, I want you to uh, ask Sandy Beach to talk at the Palm Springs Roundup, which is where Drop the Rock came from. And uh, Chuck said, who? <laughs> oh, it's this guy I heard back there, and he's from Washington. Well, give me a tape. Well, he doesn't have any tapes or anything like that. Well, I'm not inviting him out to the Palm Springs Roundup without that. And she said, well, you'll be sleeping alone. <laughs> I'm sitting at home in Virginia, right outside of Washington. The phone rings, and I answer it. And he says, is this Sandy? B yeah, this is Chuck Chamberlain. And I went, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> And all he said was, my wife told me I have to invite you to the Palm Springs <laughs> Roundup. So anyway, I went out there. And, and so all these things happen, and I sponsor all kinds of people, and I'm doing all that. And I, I said, how did I get into this? And what the heck is all this? And I was telling Bob, I finally realized 
what I've been asked to do. And if I were to encapsulate what my job is, it's the best job in the world. I've been assigned the job of going to all kinds of places and seeing all kinds of people to tell them the good news. That's my job, is to be the bearer of good news. As I tell it, I believe it. This is why sponsorship is so important, because my mind is telling me all kinds of things about there's better things than AA, that this is, you know, this book, it's so simple, it, you know, you can improve on this, you could be doing that, but I can't say that to the new guy, <laughs> and I can't say that at a convention. I have to stay with the message. And as I'm saying the message, the power of it is just lighting me up like a light bulb. I'm just sitting there going, and when I get through, I go, jeez, this thing is amazing. This thing is amazing. And I have it for that day. And then my mind comes in, not as amazing as you could make it, not as amazing as you could make it. You ought to start your own program. You ought to but I can't say that to anybody. So I'm forced back to the message, back. It's so simple, it's just there. And it's simply an opening of the channel so, so that this thing, I'm, I have to open the channel, let this come out. And it is in this flow of energy out from us that we can experience it. It's, see, this energy is already inside of us. The spirit is already there. But unless it flows out, you can't feel it. It's blocked to self-centeredness. Screw those people. i got to take care of myself. And so now it's, you, you don't even know this power exists. It is in the release that you can feel it. And so that's why it's so exciting to sponsor somebody. Because you, you got to go, well, what are we talking about tonight? And, you, you know, somebody will call me up and go, well, tonight, I forget. I got 20 people or everything. <laughs> They're doing one step a week, and you know somebody's coming over, and I just go, "Now what are we on tonight?" And you know, so they have to keep track. And I go, "Step eight. and I go, "Oh God, he's coming over to talk about step eight. <laughs> then he sits down, and I'm all ready to just go on and on and on and on. And so where have I been? I've been back in this damn thing. I've been back in there and get this stuff, and it's there, and it's true, and it's real. How do you prove it's true? Results. That's it. No other proof. There's no other proof. Results. And uh, look at AA. It's there. It's not a theory. It's real. You get to see it. It's not on a blackboard. And you see step one, see step two, and now you can see, obviously, as a result of these, you have a spiritual awakening, right? You can see it. You can see it. You can't see it. You have to do it. This is what it feels like sponsoring people and carrying the message. There's this minister who's walking along. He's been a minister for many years. And he sees this young boy kind of crying. He's really sad. And he goes up to him and he says, what's the matter, son? He said, I got my final algebra exam tomorrow. And I try as hard as I can, I can't grasp algebra. Even with the book open at home, I can't do the homework and get it right. I'm at a total loss. 
and there's no way I can pass this test. My parents are going to be disappointed, and I'm just so sad about everything. And the minister looked at him. He said, son, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you about the power of God. I'm going to tell you this, that if you get enough faith and you pray hard enough, you will pass that test. And the little boy said, what? You trust me, son. If you get enough faith and you pray hard enough, you will pass that test. And they separated, and probably about a week later, the minister happened to run into him again, and he said, hey, how did you do? And the little boy said, I passed. And the minister said, you passed? He said, yeah. I cut all the faith that I could muster, and I prayed with all my heart, and I passed the test. And he ran off, whistling and happy, and the minister said, holy shit. <laughs> And sometimes I watch what happens to new people, and that's what I feel like saying. I just go, how the hell did that schizophrenic, depressed maniac, look at him up there, he's making sense, he's blah, 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 blah. And I, I forget the power of this program. I think everything in the world says to us that we have to be the source of our own power and what we are are channels. We're like sprinklers. You know, we don't look you know, with very special designs, but we don't look very pretty unless water is going through. And most of us have our holes clogged, and that's one of the things that doing the work of the program unclogs the holes so that we can display the design. And your head does not see. All of us have this experience in meetings. My son, uh, Peter, uh, I just talked to him yesterday, and he's uh, in England, scared stiff. Peter was a guy who was uh, just kind of a catastrophe, 60 miles an hour, head first, no helmet, spring-loaded. He's now got 13 or 14 years of sobriety, and he just got accepted to Oxford Business School. He's 32 years old. He feels like he's way over his head, and he is. And... Uh, <laughs> There was a time in our lives when Linda and I, just to maintain our sanity, used to have to hold hands and pray every night for Peter. I mean, he looked like he was killing himself. Peter went to six colleges. He never got the concept of attending until he went to the fourth college. He got registering, but not attending. And so now, some of the changes he's made, he made late. But because he stayed sober, and he matured late, so many of these young people today, they're, you know, they're 30 years old, but they're like 20 years old. They aren't 30 years old maturation-wise. It is so unlinear that he is where he is having the opportunity to do what he's doing. It is like impossible. If you could have walked in Linda's at our bedroom when we were in tears praying for Peter, I said, stop worrying for God's sake. He's going to be at Oxford in 14 years. <laughs> he's going to... I would have thought, with, without a second, Creighton sponsoring him for a while, I would have thought it was the prison at Oxford, Mississippi. It would not have occurred to me. It would, it would not have occurred to me. And one of the other stories I want to tell you is about Creighton. Creighton uh, lived in Minnesota for quite some time, and now he lives in Mississippi. Creighton uh, developed a health disease due to Agent Orange, he had a, and he's developing a, a kidney issue, and he's needed a, a transplant. Creighton was on an airplane. I may not tell this exactly, but Creighton's on an airplane. And the stewardess comes down and said, would you like a drink? Creighton shows her his AA medallion. 
and said, I don't think I'll be drinking today. I have to be home on Wednesday. You know, that kind of a response. <laughs> and the gentleman sitting next to Creighton, uh, Ryan, is a couple of seats away, and he sees Creighton show the medallion, and Ryan pulls the medallion out of his pocket and says to the stewardess, he doesn't think he's going to have a drink either. And those two started talking. Three or four days from now, Ryan is going to give Creighton his kidney. <laughs> Creighton was particularly difficult to match because of some of the markers and some of the health experiences that he's had uh, in Vietnam. He was far more difficult to match than a normal person, and, and Ryan matched him almost identically. My son Bill, who has 17 years of sobriety, uh, moved to Europe for four years, and uh, he was sober about five years at that time. And uh, I supported him for three or four months. I told him that I wouldn't do it afterwards, and he worked at the World's Fair. and needed a job, and he went and applied at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. Nothing happened, didn't give him a job. So he goes to an AA meeting in Madrid, and the man who interviewed him is at the AA meeting. Bill is now not in a three-piece suit. He's in, he's in a T-shirt and Bermuda shorts. And they go through the meeting. At the end of the meeting, the guy who interviewed him came over and says, I'm really impressed with you. Why don't you come over and interview? And uh, <laughs> Bill is wondering whether he should tell the man that he already has interviewed <laughs> two days before. And Bill said, I, I have interviewed with you, sir. <laughs> it was, you know... <sighs> <laughs> there are so many things happening in life that you can't see with your mind, that you can't feel with your fingers, that you don't know anything about, that you have so much power available to you in the living of your own life, and you don't get it. You are walking around with $1,000 bills crushed up in your, in your pocket, and they're turning off your lights because you haven't paid your utility bill. You don't get it. I mean, there really is a solution. There really is a power. And that we're intended to be pipes, not the well. That when the power comes through us, we get to be the instrument. We get to play our music. And that each of us is an instrument, intact, fully constructed, nothing missing. And then what we've done is we've obscured that. We have added... You know, it's like we're a metallic instrument and we dragged it through the junkyard of life and we showed up in AA and it's a big metal ball with a bunch of metal that we have accidentally attracted and we dragged it through the junkyard of life and through doing the steps, we start to pry off pieces of junk. And little by little, we get to start to get closer to the source of who we be. I give you Sandy. I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'm going up next week to Washington, D.C., and I had a compatriot, Hal Marley, who passed away a few years ago, who got sober the same year I did. And he and myself and Ed Chandler, from, who's down in Texas now, were the class of 64 up in uh, the Washington area. And we had dinner after we got to know each other for a while. We started having dinner once a month especially in the years when we had 20 years to 30 years, somewhere in there. We, we had dinner almost every month. 
And Hal ended up, he was a retired Air Force fighter pilot, was an air attache to Poland in, in the Cold War, and had very interesting careers, went with OEO for a while, but ended up at the State Department as the director of the alcohol programs at the State Department. He would be calling ambassadors back to go to treatment, you know, that kind of a thing. And so he loved to operate up at the super high level. I used to kid him and say his only resentment was there's no class above first class, so that he could be up there. And um, he was very close to Bob Pearson, who was uh, the manager of the General Service Office at the time. And with his worldwide communication system at State Department, he was plugged in to every AA event on the planet. I mean, if I had a question, you know, do I know anybody in Peoria? And he would go, yes, Andy, remember this Jack used to live here, now he's in Peoria, and he'd have his phone number. And it was like the internet in one guy, you know, <laughs> as far as AA was concerned. And he preached gratitude. I mean, there's uh, people all over the country that had attitude of gratitude pins, and he just would, Mr. Gratitude, Dr. Gratitude. But the story I want to tell you is um, about Hal that he was so plugged in that nothing happened in AA without him knowing it. I mean, when they're getting ready to plan the international, he knew where they were having it first, so he could come around, well, the international's gonna be in Toronto, it's gonna be, in, you know, whatever it was, and he just had to be the first. And then we'd be at the dinner, Ed and I, once a month, and each guy would treat and go to their favorite restaurant, and then we'd talk about AA, and it was always about what's going on, and this and that. Well, I was at a, uh, an AA group one night, and I took a chance, a, a raffle, and I won a 12 and 12. And I got home, and I was just thumbing through. I, you know, I keep them, and then I can give them away to people. And so I was thumbing through this thing, and I went, God, look at this. What a weird thing. The thing had been screwed up by the printer. And the pages, some of the pages were out of sequence. They were back and forth, and it's, I knew I, something told me, keep it, keep it. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I knew this thing was going to come in handy. And then it dawned on me about six months later, and I said, i got to go find that 12 and 12. I want to see if in there there's a place where, you know, on the pages, like a half a page where the step ends, and then you turn the page and another step starts, and it's out of sequence. So here was step eight followed by step 11. So I bring the book to uh, the dinner. And I put it on the table and Hal, which is, what's that? And I said, I'll tell you after dinner. It's a big deal, Hal. This is the first volume. <laughs> of the new 12 and 12. And of course, he's looking at me like, what, what? I mean, he's very suspicious. So we have dinner, and we get through the meal, and I say, um, you know, Hal, I've been doing this step class. I, got, I don't know how I got into that, but I did a Saturday morning step class for 19 years. And you know, you do it week after week. And he was well aware of that. And I said, Hal, I'm doing this thing for 12 years. And I said, about a year ago, I started through them and it occurred to me they're in the wrong order. <laughs> and it was like I was being blasphemous, you know what I mean? What? 
And I said, I know, and, and I knew, and so I suppressed it. I said, that's ridiculous, I put it down. But it kept coming back, Hal. Every time I went through, it was clearer and clearer and clearer that are in the wrong order. So I called Bob Pearson. Well, I could see the look on his face. You call Bob Pearson without checking with me first? You know. And I told him, I said, Bob, I'm having this crazy thing. It's happening to me. And he thought it was, you know, he dismissed it. But the more I talked about it, he said, well, I hear a few points over the phone. Could you type it up? your rationale for all of this. So I sent him in about eight typewritten pages, Hal, and uh, it's showing how the sequence should be changed. And, and he's still looking at me, you know, like, what, what, what? And you know something? They formed a committee. They ran it by the trustees, like they could run it by without Hal knowing. And this is the new 12 and 12. <laughs> and as you can plainly see, here's step eight, followed by step 11. <laughs> and Ed and I swear that for a millionth of a second, there was fear in his eyes. <laughs> And he grabbed the book away from me, and he said, <laughs> So that's just an anecdote about Hal Marley. <laughs> We're at the end of the time. Okay. <laughs> We're there. Me to start, which I think is unfair. I have a quote from a, from a meeting on Friday mornings with a few of the guys in the audience go to, I just thought it was a great quote. Alcoholics, at our, at our best, we are the elite of the mentally ill. <laughs> Alcoholics, at our best, we are the elite of the mentally ill. And the other quote I, I just love, it said, the monkey is off my back, but the circus is still in town. <laughs> I mean, where else would you go to get those kind of pithy, you know, uh, sorts of things? I started, uh, I don't really know where to go to this. Andy and I don't, didn't exactly have a path, but we were talking about the solution, and we intend to kind of end up with something that is more specifically spiritual. Um, so what I'm going to talk about and see if, if uh, Sandy wants to relate to it is... Uh, when I started to talk about was problems and sobriety a little bit, that I said that many of us, when we first come in, get a real burst of energy, really like what we hear, get kind of on a honeymoon, we make a great you know, growth period for the first you know, two or three years. And by the way, these are obviously generalizations. I'm going to talk about people getting in trouble at five, six, seven, eight years, and not everybody gets in trouble at five or six or seven, eight years. These are just kind of but I'm saying, I believe what I'm saying, in general, uh, patterns that are, that are fairly common. And Bill talks about some of this stuff uh, in the big book. But when we talk about, you know, when he talks about, you know, uh, now we're, you've been sober long enough where you know that, you know, all your problems haven't been removed. You know, you've got problems other than alcohol and that we're going to be doing these spiritual practices over our lifetime. Uh, but most of us kind of get on a plateau. So let's just say we go, you know, we've made great progress through the first 
uh, uh, two or three years. Is that for me? Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then what, what happens is you start running into what happened to me is I started having problems I didn't think I should have. I'm an idealist. I came in and you told me that you had an answer for alcoholism. You told me that mo the unmanageability, I thought you told me the unmanageability of my life was a result of my alcoholism, that alcoholism was physical but also mental and spiritual. If I took the principles of the steps, applied them to my life and changed, I then thought, well, ipso facto, I can get rid of the problems in my life. All my life, it seemed to me that everybody was telling me, Bob, you're fairly well equipped to live life. And I could do it for short spurts. <laughs> if life was a sprint, <laughs> um, I had moments of brilliance interrupted by long periods of mediocrity and failure. And, um, but I only looked at the moments of brilliance. Uh, people always said to me, you know, you're, you're, you're well equipped. And I, I thought, yeah, so if I got rid of the problems, I could get back on top and, you know, I'll start doing it. Well, I get sober. I think all my problems are going to get solved. They come up. I start working on them, and they don't get solved. One by one, I had, I had an a interesting issue. I went to a psychologist not too long ago with one of my sons working on a, a father-son issue. And uh, in that thing, he said, I work with a lot of upper-middle-class kids. And he said, one of the biggest problems I have <coughs> is the, the problem they have leaving home. That they leave home. They're used to the family level of living, and they leave home, and they go down about six stories. You know, they, uh, that's in our society today, there's going to be lots of kids that aren't going to do as well as their parents. And boy, did I identify with that when I left home. I mean, this idea of now I have to buy toothpaste, you know, or, you know, I mean, gas. You know, I mean, gas was what I charged to my father. I mean, I was so spoiled. And uh, so I had, I did, I was real immature. I came in when I was 23 years old. I didn't really learn how to work till I was 30. And I had a level of fear that I didn't even identify. So I had problems getting up in the morning. I had problems managing my money. I had gambling problems. I had anger issues uh, as a father, those sorts of things. One by one, they'd kind of come at me, and I'd try to take them on. And I was singularly unsuccessful at managing, or at getting rid of my defects of character in my early sobriety. And at first, I thought, oh, I'm just not doing this right. I'll, I'll just jack it up a little bit. And I'm going to five meetings a week. I'm sponsored. I sponsor people. I'm starting to give talks. I do jail stuff. I'm doing institutional stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just timing. I'll get it. You know, well, I didn't get it. Well, I can tell you by my fourth or fifth or sixth year of sobriety, when you still don't know how to work, you get an idea that something's wrong. Uh, you know, that you don't have a pass. You know, you're really going to have to get this thing handled. And if you don't get it handled, you're not going to have a very good life. Um, and I didn't have an answer. And what happened to me is I got more and more scared. And I kind of thought maybe this is just another deal where I do a great start and poor finish. You know, I've done that one a lot. Now I'm going to do it in AA. You know, it works for other people. It doesn't work for me. And I really believe without hesitation that it worked for you. Now what I lost the belief in, believe it or not, was step two. I went back, so out of desperation, when, I, when my pants caught on fire at seven and seven, between seven and eight years of sobriety, I'm thinking about suicide, really thinking about suicide, not just sort of thing. I'm not thinking about drinking, but I'm thinking about, you know, I don't want to go through this cycle again. And uh, the answer was, you know, I bet, 
Sandy and I have been exposed to some of the great teachers in AA. And I've, in my home group, I mean, one of them for me, one of my great teachers is Warren. And there are other, other models for me. And those people all had a level of spirituality that I did not have. But the problem that I have with spirituality is if I was going to develop spirituality, I'm going to develop a relationship with God, right? Well, if you develop a relationship with God, you do not have to be a rocket scientist to figure out he's going to want you to get rid of your subscription to Penthouse. You know, I think. I'm not positive. Or stop your gambling habit that's four or five hours a day. You know, and maybe get on a budget. Maybe, you know, not stop spending 500 more bucks a month than you make. And, you know, stop being angry or violent with your children. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that you've got three or four patterns of behavior in your life that are probably going to get right on the line as soon as you open up the relationship. So I thought, what the hell's the use of... I've been trying to change those things for six years. What the hell's the use of developing a relationship with God if you can't fulfill the conditions of the relationship? So as soon as I clean my act up, I'll go put my application in. <laughs> but, but putting it in ahead of time, it, it just isn't going to work. And I was stuck in that place for two and a half years. And finally, out of desperation... I went back to the steps. Step one, real easy. You know what I was missing? Step two. I lost step two. I believed it for us, but not for me. You know, I, I mean, crazy. I believed it. Without question, I believed it for us. I could tell you that this program of Restoring to Sanity, when in fact, I was living my life with a level of unmanageability, and I didn't believe it for me, and I had to regain that. And out of the pain, you know, pain, the touchstone of spiritual growth in Alcoholics Anonymous, pain got me to a second surrender. And my ego got suppressed enough that I finally got to a point and said, okay, it's all got to get up on the table. Let's put it on the table. I'll put anything on the table. I'll put my marriage on the table. I'll put my business on the table. I'll put it all on the table. And uh, I started to look around. And, of course, when I extricated my head from my backside, I made a discovery is that there were people in my own meeting with bigger problems than I had, with smiles on their faces, resolving those problems with the steps. And I came to believe again that God was going to restore me, not us, me, <laughs> even though us, to sanity. I did a third step on my knees with my sponsor in his office, and I went through and I did a fourth and fifth step. And after I did the fourth, it was my third, fourth, and fifth step. I'm seven years sober at this time. And after I did that, um, I had a relapse into my defects of character of some significance. One day where, you know, uh, where I went to work late, left early, got in a backgammon game, won 600 bucks, came home, got in a fight with my wife, and slapped one of the kids. One of those days you'd like to have it videoed and sent to the general service office uh, <laughs> to show what eight years of sobriety can do. I said, gee, it happened again. And I'm saying, well, weren't you there? <laughs> I'm saying, yeah, but it was so habitual. It's like I'm in a blackout. So I'm like, I'm like out of relationship to my own life. I mean, that's how, that's how nuts it is, okay? And what I realized in that moment of truth, when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, when I took step one, I was stripped down and I stood naked in front of my alcoholism. At eight years of sobriety, I was stripped and stood naked in front of me out of the unmanageability of my life, out of the powerlessness of my life sober. And I realized that I couldn't do it, that on, on my own resources, I was insufficient to the process. 
And then I got a second thought I hadn't had in a hell of a long time. You are right where you're supposed to be. And I was allowed to take the sixth and the seventh step, which I had not taken at depth until I was eight years sober. You know, I was trying to get rid of my defects of character. I don't have the power to get rid of my defects of character. And in that surrender moment, okay, I took the sixth and the seventh step, and four of the major problems I was dealing with in my life disappeared that night. Okay. Now, I, I had to put supports in. I talked to my sponsor and made appointments about when I'd go to work and how long I'd stay at work. I gave my wife the checkbook. I stopped gambling that night. So I, I had to do things that would help support that decision, which I often had not done in the past. So this pattern where fairly serious crap going on, fairly long into sobriety, well, it's an unattractive pattern and one that I'm not trying to advertise, I think it is not uncommon. I think it is that many of us end up in a plateau in early middle sobriety where we have fairly serious, un I think our alcoholism goes underground. The physical part gets cured and the alcoholism starts to express itself in compulsive and obsessive behavior in some other area of our life, sexually, eating, money, you know, whatever, the, wherever the hell it comes out. I was a generalist, I had two or three. There are some people who, <laughs> Some people specialize, you know, they just have one. And, uh, but I don't, very few people are exempt from what I just described. And that, you're, and that the pattern of your alcoholism goes underground and, ex and continues to express itself in your sobriety, in your life. And I'll tell you something, those patterns of compulsion in my life, it was like drinking. It was like being on dry drunks. I had blackout-like moments. I had... I was hiding stuff. I had patterns of behavior that were very familiar to me in my sobriety. But when I took, when I, when I went in order through the steps and got to step six and seven and had started to have a second spiritual surrender. But the only reason I had that surrender, I think, is because I went through the steps. I had, the only reason I was able to do six and seven at that depth is I had the first five alive and well at that moment. And I was in as much pain and I told Warren, I said, I feel like I'm dying of thirst lying next to a lake. I said, I can pass the test. I know what to do. I just can't do it. <laughs> I know what to do. I, I'm not doing it. I'll tell you something. I think that a lot of us, when I said we are not under-equipped, I see people in Alcoholics Anonymous that I think are enormously talented people and whose lives do not seem to reflect that talent. And the, if I were to put it two places, one is I would, I would say it's a, it's a type of, when you have unresolved problems, they are like miniature black holes. They suck the joy out of your life. They just drain you of energy that you need to live your life. And I think it's the irresolution of those things that drain us of that spirit that Sandy was talking about. When he said, I get to share the spirit. Well, he gets to share it because he's open. His pipe's unclogged. Okay, but I think... You know, certainly at seven years of sobriety, I had a little log jam in front of my pipe. There was no spirit coming out. There was a little pus leaking out the end of the pipe, but there was no, no great spirit, you know, coming out of it. And uh, uh, so what I want to say is I don't think that's as unusual as I, th I thought it was unusual. I thought it was dirty. I was, I was ashamed, and I did not want to share it. My sponsor knew about 60% of what was going on. I know that over here you tell 100%, and I think that's terrific that you, 
that you do that. I was only telling myself 60%, by the way. So that's why my sponsor only had 60% of it. I wasn't strong enough to give myself the right truths and the, and the, and the level of honesty. Okay? But when I put it all on the line, you know what happens to you is you die. What do you got to do? All you got to do is die and change everything. Other than that, there's not much left to do. But, you know, I know that one of the things that holds us back from really, in an open and willing way, offering ourselves to the God our understanding is we think we're going to disappear. I mean, you take away my defects of character and you take away, you know, some of those things in my life. Where am I in that process? Okay, well, I'll tell you something. You're going to be more there than you have ever been in a real and substantial way. You're going to have a chance to be in your life in a more powerful way than you've ever been. It is the opposite because you have now freed yourself with what's been holding you back. You have had, you know, all these layers of crud. You know, all these years you thought you were the Chevrolet. You've been putting new tires on it. You've been putting new hubcaps on it. You've had that some bitch painted eight times. You've got, you know, you're dragging up and down. You're the driver. And you've paid almost no attention to the driver. So when we get out of the external solution, when we get out of painting the car and putting new hubcaps on it, when we get out of it as soon as I get the next 50 grand, as soon as I get the next this, as soon as I get the right woman or man. But most of us, without even realizing it, are externally oriented. We're looking outside of ourselves for the answer. And it's just the opposite. It is just when you, find, when you start to find the answer inside is when you're really going to start, start expressing your life. What I want to say is that I don't think it's uncommon to get stuck. I think the nature of spiritual walk, what do they always say? The greatest temptation, once you have found God, is to be tempted with the removal of God. The dry periods are the toughest periods of time you will have. Maintaining a lifetime relationship with Alcoholics Anonymous is not easy. Maintaining a lifetime relationship with your sponsor is not easy, or a spouse. That is what life is about. It will put you in front of you. Long-term relationships will put you in front of the unworkability of your life. If you are going to be a 40-year member of AA, you're going to have to resolve relationship issues and life issues of some significance quite a number of times to remain vital, active, and important, and keep your program alive. So the unworkability is not uncommon. There is a solution, even though it looks like it's proving to you in the middle of your sobriety that it doesn't work. It is the opposite. What I found in retrospect, what was happening to me is that my nose was being pushed in something more real, that there was a pile of manure, that I, my nose was being pushed in it, and I was rather than my life getting worse, I was simply seeing it as it was. I did not see it as it was at one year of sobriety. I did not see the causes and conditions. I did not see the level of unmanageability. And through the work and the steps, it was like God's hand was at my back, pushing me a little bit closer to the reality of my life. It felt like it was going backwards. It was the opposite. It was going forwards. I was moving towards what was in my way. The path of spiritual growth is through the fire, not around it. The fire is an illusion. Everyone in this room knows that when they've changed a significant piece of unworkability in their life, it produced energy, not pain. It was an experience of joy, not pain. And why we resist, because we think we're giving something up and it's painful when we get close to seeing the truth. So I think our walk in Alcoholics Anonymous is that walk. And we're, we're going to run into periods where it's going to be easier than other periods, and we're going to run into periods where it seems like it doesn't work, and that's the nature of spiritual journey. Thanks, Bob. I enjoyed that immensely. 
what I want to talk about is going back to basics. But before I forget it, because these, I get these ideas that go in my head, I want to just make an aside about a phrase that we hear that I've been thinking about lately. Things happening in God's time. Has anybody ever heard that thing? Well, it's just happening in God's time. This is what I think about that. I think that's crazy. Let's say that you haven't had a job in a while, you're running out of money, and you're panicking over it. You're freaking out. You can't sleep. I mean, it's just got you. So you go to your higher power, and you decide to pray about it. And you pray, God, please find me a job. Please help me find a job so that I can systematically save a little bit out of my paycheck and allow this money to build up so that it'll take away this terrible panic that I have over this situation. The prayer is asking for something that takes a long time. We just prayed that our problem be solved in about a year. Instead of saying, God, could you please remove my fear over my situation now? And we get it now. So in other words, the time frame that we established is what we got, and then we blame it on God. Well, it's just happening in God's time. Oh, no, that's exactly what you asked for. So I'd like a job, and then I'd save up the money, and then I'll do that. And then, because in our own mind, we think we see a solution, which is an intellectual solution instead of a spiritual solution. The spiritual solution is the closeness to the higher power where there are no problems. You see, they just get lifted out. When it's lifted out, and the fear is gone, your creativity rushes back and you suddenly dream up a perfect place to go look for a job that you wouldn't have been able to think of while you're in a panic state. It is so funny, so I'm throwing that out. Now, I'm sure there is such a thing as God's time, but I'm saying a lot of times we set the stage for something that's gonna unfold (laughs) over a long period of time and we're impatient. Well, we're getting exactly what we asked for. And so I just throw that out of something. Now, the thing about the basics, there was, a, there was a story about people visiting a friend of theirs in the hospital who was in an oxygen tent, and they're carrying on a conversation through the plastic. You know, how's it going, Joe? Oh, doing good. I'm feeling good. Yeah, it looks like I might be getting out in a couple days in there. Hey, can I get you something? No, no, I'm fine. Well, go help yourself to a banana. And they're, they're having this thing, and when the guy comes back with the banana, he's eating it, he steps on the oxygen hose. And as they're visiting, Joe is displaying some symptoms of uh, (laughs) not doing too well. He's getting a (laughs) shortness of breath, and it's, you know, so they buzz the nurse, and she comes in and goes, oh my God, maybe it's his heart. Maybe let's take his blood. And they're thinking, maybe we got to get him some insulin. I don't know. Get the doctor. Have you done his medication? And then somebody looks and goes, you're stepping on his oxygen hose. They step off and everything straightened out, but for a while, there was a complete misdiagnosis of the situation. And I think that we can easily misdiagnose our problems as they occur to us. And so I like to think about what is our problem? Did you ever, now, before we come to AA, we were told about that all the time. How many? If you remember, what was their favorite thing that people would point at? Say, you know what your problem is? You're a lazy son of a... You know what your problem is? And we were being told all the time. 
what our problem was. When we came to AA, they tell us again, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But where did they get this? Where did they get this? This is what your problem is. And I like to think that, you know, what is alcoholism? Maybe we should all agree on what it is. Uh, because there's many definitions, the American Medical Association, all kinds of things. And I'm sure if we went around the room, everybody here would have a definition. Well, I can't drink safely. It's an obsession of this and a compulsion of the mind and an allergy of the boop and a beep. And they have all of those <laughs> things that we could use as a definition. But here's where I like to go to establish, you see, because if you're going back to the basics, that is the basic, right? Is an agreement of what the problem is. And if uh, I like to get um, Carl Jung back involved when he sent Roland off. Now, the, the ending to that story, and Bob knows it very well, is that um, after AA had been around for a number of years, matter of fact, it was uh, just about up into the six, 1960, Bill Wilson realized that he had never given Carl Jung the credit that he deserved because he really had established um, the fundamentals of the surrender into AA with Roland. And so he wrote him a letter. And every, every so often they'll have this exchange of letters between Dr. Jung and Bill Wilson in the grapevine. And if you ever see him, you ought to read him. And Bill just wrote to tell him that... Um, Maybe you don't remember, but Roland Hazard, you treated him, and as a result of what you told him, he went here, and then he came, and we started this organization. It's now all over the world. It's Alcoholics Anonymous, and you played the key starting role in getting this all done. And then Dr. Young wrote back, and it was right before he died. It was amazing that Bill happened to write him, and I think six months later, uh, he had died. And he wrote back and said, Dear Mr. Wilson, uh, no, I didn't know what happened to um, Roland. I'm so glad to hear that. That is absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing that. He said, Now, when I was seeing um, Roland Hazard, it was so early in the century, I knew that spirituality was the answer to this, but it wasn't safe for me as a psychiatrist to talk about that because I would have been laughed out of my profession. But now... Well, many psychiatrists are seeing that there are spiritual powers and that this is an important component of human beings. He said, this is what I felt about alcoholics back then. And he went on to describe the situation of being an alcoholic as having a thirst for something beyond ourselves. The implication is that alcoholics have an extraordinary longing for God. They all sense that something's missing in their lives and they are constantly aware of this emptiness and they search for something to fill this, not knowing what it is. This is called misdiagnosis. We think it's money or sex or power or whatever it is and we find out what it is through the process of elimination. Money doesn't fix it, this doesn't fix it, this doesn't fix it. We show up at this hokey pokey program <laughs> that says, oh, we know how to fix that thing. Do you know that thing inside of you? You know that thing? That's because you're too far away from God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, lo and behold, that does fix it. 
Now, there is the core of the problem. So we always have to remember that no matter how, what we're diagnosing as our problem today, we're misdiagnosing. This is the core problem. So when we go into the big book, what does it say our dilemma is? Lack of power. Now, do we always diagnose it that way? Oh, I just got fired. My kid ran away. I don't know where the heck he is. Oh, my God, what are these feelings that I'm having? It's hard to go. It, oh, this is lack of power. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? Because our mind just is, is quickly interpreting and going, oh, no, I, I, I need more money, and I have to go find my son, and I have to do that. That's why I am so upset. No, that, that is not why you're upset. Misery is optional. So if we are troubled, it's because we have a circumstance which is neutral, that is bothering us. That's the problem, not the circumstance. See, the guy next door has the same circumstance, but his spiritual condition is such that it's not troubling him. It is just a circumstance. Oh, I lost my car. Oh, I'll find it tomorrow. You, know, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's not a major event. He just, well, I'll notify the police. And the guy over here is loose. He can hardly breathe. My car, my car, my car's coming. <laughs> they both had the same circumstance. This guy is not being troubled by it. This guy is being troubled by the circumstance. What's his problem? Lack of power. The power doesn't make you find your car. The power gets you undisturbed. And the problem wasn't the car missing. The problem was that it bothered you that it was missing. You see the difference? It is very core issue. In the beginning, of course, we can't even conceptualize this. I'm sure there's people sitting out here now going, what? What's he, what do you think? <laughs> but you can't have a life without, prop, without circumstantial issues and problems. Yeah. I mean, it's unavailable. If we think the solution is going to be that we're going to get to a point where we just aren't going to have problems. No, it never happened. But we have to, that's why we have friends. That's why we go to meetings. That's why we go in there and we just go, and then you just go, well, we have to surrender. We have to, we're going to get this and we can get undisturbed again and then move into the situations and resolve them on the other level. Now, this is brought out beautifully. It's my favorite thing to talk about in the fundamental nature of the problem in the chapter of the agnostic, and I think I do this every time I talk. I go to those first two paragraphs in the chapter of the agnostic, and it says, okay, are you new? Let me explain spirituality to you. I'm gonna explain, it's very simple. It's a real easy thing. It's not like religion where we tell you about a certain higher power who was born 4,000 years ago. This is our best guess of what he looked like, and this was over in India, and, then, and he left these messages, and blah, blah, blah. And so you believe what I'm saying, then trust this power and you're going to be fine. We don't have an AA power. There's no such thing. So, and spirituality doesn't have a power. It has a path. It has a technique to get in touch and then you can describe what this power is. So they lay it out. Now, so how do you get spiritual then if there's nothing to believe in? You know, see what I'm saying? How, well, how do you do this? Well, you go to the problem as it's laid out in that chapter. And it says very simply, and see if you can follow this now. If when you drink, you have little control over the amount you drink, if when you stop, you can't stay stopped, then you're an alcoholic. 
Okay, so there it is. Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. Okay, now let me tell you what that means when you just said you're an alcoholic. If that's the case, you are suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience can conquer. And you go, what? I remember my sponsor talking to me, and he says, did you hear what I said? You're suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience. It's one of the rare illnesses in the American Medical Association <laughs> that only a spiritual experience can conquer. And I said, Bill, I don't believe in spiritual experiences. Oh, you're screwed. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, what am I going to do? Why don't you change your mind? <laughs> Become a former agnostic. And then I'm going, spiritual experience, what is that? You know, I'm going to believe in the power, what is that? And I had the same feeling Bob does. I don't want to get spiritual to make me give all my crap away to the poor. <laughs> what if it overtakes you and your Mother Teresa and, and she doesn't go bowling or anything? And so I don't want that, you know, I don't want to become entirely spiritual and I want to partial, whoa. So then the next paragraph confronts this. Okay, you're almost spiritual. You're almost there. It says, to be doomed an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not easy alternatives to face. And guess what? Wow, whoa, 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 whoa. Is there another door? Oh. Doctor, how bad is an alcoholic death? Oh, shit. Okay, I'll do the spiritual door. <laughs> Why do we get spiritual? There's nowhere else to go. They made us a deal we couldn't refuse. We didn't believe in it. We believed that there had to be something behind that door or it's over. So AA doesn't try to prove the existence of a higher power, but it sure convinces you of the need for one. And when you accept to your core gut that you need a higher power, the game is almost over. We just have the other 11 steps. <laughs> but that's, not, that's hardly anything. The steps are very easy. It's debating whether you're going to do them that is the hard part. How long does it take to do a fourth step? Oh, four years and three hours. Four years of delaying and three hours of doing it. But if we desperately have to get through it all, these things go bing, 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 because we're eager to get there. Why are we eager to get there? Are we convinced there's a pot of gold at the end? No, we're convinced that what'll happen if we don't do it. And then when we get there, we go, oh my God, I had no idea I was gonna get this jackpot. And then when we tell our stories, it doesn't sound like that. We go, well, I came in, I saw this beautiful spiritual program, <laughs> and I just went for it. <laughs> and then your sponsor goes, yeah, with my hands around your neck choking you, you eagerly sought the spiritual program. Don't misdiagnose anything. One, the last thing I'll turn back to Bob is, I, I don't think I've missed more than four days without going to a meeting. And I'll tell you why I don't want to ever do that. Because I've heard stories about guys with gals with solid, solid programs. And they moved 
And while, when they first moved, there was a screw up and the house heating system wasn't working and that this thing and their job sent them over here and then they got sick. And through no real deliberate action on their part, they went maybe a month without meetings. And here comes the tricky part. And they felt even better than when they were going to meetings. Ladies and gentlemen, I could not handle that. You put that in my computer, that I'm, when, uh, I feel better after a month without meetings than I did with 25 years with meetings, I would not know how to handle that. Where, does, where do you file that? You see what I'm saying? Well, maybe I overreacted. <laughs> you were pretty young. Yeah, I was young, you know. <laughs> maybe in 25 years they've taken the impurities out of booze that, that, that hurts you. And, Maybe I didn't need those meetings all the time. Maybe I was brainwashed. Maybe I'm doing great. It's, I can't believe that. I don't know how to handle that. So I never want to have that situation. So I'm just going to keep going and going so that I never have to deal with that. OK, back in here. There's a book I was reading by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. One of the distinctions he makes is the difference between happiness he says, happiness is a condition that is based on your perception that circumstances are okay. So most of us are, are thinking that, what, what do you want? I want to be happy. Okay? But peace and joy are not conditioned upon circumstances being okay. You can have peace and joy and have trouble. Most of us identify the trouble with ourselves. We think we're the problem, that Something's wrong with my life, not my life circumstances. And it's really tough to change your life. It isn't so tough to get on a budget, but it's tough to change who you think you are. And I think that many of us have these distinctions collapsed. And what we're trying to do is kind of change our essential selves. But Sandy, part of, part of what Sandy was saying is when you access the power, the problems just become circumstances you are now able to be in front of those circumstances. I, for the longest time, had an issue of being angry and sometimes occasionally violent with my middle boy. He was just a pain in the ass. He was just a challenge to me. He just, and it wasn't like there weren't issues. You know, he would occasionally get arrested or get thrown out of school or something like that. And my attitude was, what are you going to do? I mean, what the heck are you going to do? I don't know what to do. And I was doing what my dad did with me. My, and my wonderful, wonderful man, my father. But I was doing what my dad did with me. And somewhere into the unworkability of that, I got the thought that Sandy talked about with his neighbor. If my brother was parenting my son, my brother would not be doing what I am doing. If there were 10 men who had my son as their son, only two of us would have struck him. Where is the problem? The problem is not in the circumstance. The problem is my reaction to the circumstance. Life is just full of circumstances. And I'll tell you something else about circumstances and problems. I don't think about problems being opportunities. How is God going to get our attention if something wants to change? How is the universe going to get our attention if it, wants us, if it wants to get the message to us? And the message is, it's not working. Okay. Pain. Or your spouse. Or your father. Or your son. It's going to come from the people in your life. Maybe your creditors, maybe a cop. 
That is the universe giving you evidence of the workability and unworkability of your life. And it is a signal to pay attention. And you can change, make decisions, start to do something different. And, and we take it as, you know, why am I getting this message? What's, something's wrong. We, we panic when we do this. And I really think that it, what it is is guideposts. You know when they say, what do I do to, to become enlightened? Chop wood and carry water. What it means is live your life. As you live your life, you will be presented with the material you need to become spiritually awake. As you live your life with your spouse, you will be presented with the unworkability of yourself in relationships, or with your father, or with your mother, or with your son, or with your boss. When you live your life in long-term relationships, you will be presented with what needs to be dealt with for you to become spiritually awake. And then you bring it back into the process, you know, you bring it back into our practice, and Ms. Andy says, once you start to believe that your resolution is in finding the power, the circumstances don't, it, it isn't personal. That's the thing that is just so profound to me over a period of time. Your life isn't personal. It isn't, it's, it's almost like it's not about you. I mean, I mean, that sounds nuts, but I mean, there's a freedom in that. I am a reactor, you know, that spring-loaded 60 miles an hour head first type thing. I would get a thought and I would react. And the thought, when I would have it, would be printed on my eyeball. When a thought is printed on your eyeball, it is your reality. There is no other place to look. So I would think, what else can you do? I get it and I'd act on it. After a period of time, as you start to access, you know, the first three steps, you start to rely on the God of your understanding. When you start to get out of your way and you start to realize that your thoughts are not reality, there's something wrong with the pattern. I mean, one of the things, one of the great conversations we have in Alcoholics Anonymous, is you have to have a healthy questioning of your own thinking. Not a neurotic questioning, but a healthy questioning of what goes through your mind. You know, our thinkers are not always in tune. And so when you have that thought, I now have a space between my thought and when I act. I have a choice. I didn't, I think I've always had that choice, but it didn't appear to me that I had that space nor that choice. So I get a I get, and, and at 37 years of sobriety, I get the same thought when I'm angry. I might have a thought to strike someone. But I look at that today and I think, wow, I haven't had that thought in two months. Where the heck did that come from? I haven't had that thought in a year and a half. Where the hell did that come from? I am not my thought. I'm no longer a monkey on a string. I'm not a jukebox. You can put a coin in me and push B5. I don't have to play B5. I used to have to play it. You put me in front of the circumstance, we're going to dance, baby. You want to dance? We'll dance. Okay? But now you put the coin in, you push the button. I get to choose. That is like being let out of jail. Without any circumstance in my life being changed, I get to be at peace. In the circumstances, I get to be untroubled, as our book talks about. There is a significant part of the practice and solution. Good job, buddy. We're at the break. Thank you, gentlemen. That was a beautiful talk. Thank you for joining us on Server Shares. We'll see you on the next episode.